All right, we are live uh, with the Deadly Analysis podcast. Um, so this week is going to be kind of fun. Uh, by the way, if you're new to the podcast, this is a place where uh, we maneuver through the cerebral and psychological avenues of fear in horror films. It's a place where we position our nights. I'm just going to throw these puns on as thick as I can. Um, we position our Sunday nights, more specifically, uh, to discuss good horror films. Um, you could say that we're the grandmasters, if you will, when it comes to... Uh, well, not challenging death like we're going to be discussing in tonight's film. Or how, how would I put this? We at the Deadly Analysis podcast like to let death challenge us. And that is my entire attempt at being deep the rest of the night. Uh, that took me three days to write. Stayed up all night. Um, so just so you know, uh, that is, that's all I'm going to say the rest of the night. Uh, we're actually delving into Ingmar Bergman's 1957 film, The Seventh Seal, which at this point I think is the oldest film we tasked ourselves with discussing in this podcast, up until next week, where we will be doing um, The Phantom Carriage, which I think is 1929. So we're just going backwards. Um, this is also one of the one of the films uh, that's all about death and doubt. So thanks for choosing a film like that with those warm topics, Ben. Great, great choice. Um, so uh, Unpacking this film, starting this podcast by talking about this film seems to me to be a kind of monumental task. There's so much going on in this movie. There's theological stuff, there's existential stuff, there's historical stuff. So I thought a good point to start would be to just sort of hand the reins over to Ben, because I'm lazy, and just ask him at least his initial reasons for selecting this film to review, and then maybe from there kind of pinpoint um, an avenue to potentially begin our discussion, because there's just so many roads that we could go down with this film. Um, because it's so it's so theologically and I think philosophically rich. So I'll hand this over to Ben and just ask the really simple question: Why did you select the Seventh Seal? Perfect question to start with. Um, I will definitely say that you know this is a movie that it shows up in the Criterion Collection. It has been the centerpiece of a great deal of study. People talk about it. People write papers about it. They connect it up with um, philosophical theories. Uh, write books about how kind of like that overlap happens. But that's not to my to my shame. That is not sort of the perspective that I have on this. Um, the reason that I watched this movie initially was because the themes that you see in this film show up across other movies. Um, you know, it, it's something that you hear about. It's something that people talk about. And so mostly I was just really curious. I watched this movie and it just, it hits me like a ton of bricks. So whenever we were sort of putting together our lists, um, each of us that kind of like contribute to the podcast of the movies that we think are, are sort of the best or like that we might want to talk about, um, you know, I was initially sort of uh, hesitant to put this on there because it a little, is a little bit older, um, but also because it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's sort of a mystery to me. So I watched this movie and it had such a profound impact that it's, it's one of those situations where it's, it's like you think you see something out of the corner of your eye and you're not quite sure. So you look around to see if anyone else maybe saw the same thing that you did, but you don't want to say anything just because of the way it might sound. I have the same reaction to this just because what I see in this might be more than, than what's actually there. I might be reading so much into this that it just goes above and beyond what Ingmar Bergman might have, have intended for the film. Um, but what that is, honestly, and it's, it's a little bit hard to talk about. Like I, I actually have never tried to talk about how I interpret this film with anybody mostly because of the, the subject matter. It's like, how do you broach this topic? How do you start to talk about what's in this movie? It seems almost impossible but for me, I think what we see here in this film, the movie sort of acts as a finger that points at kind of a deeper truth. And what I think that truth is is sort of the root of all horror. I think it really sort of points to what makes terror, terror, even if we mask it behind 
you know, or a blank face mask, like in Michael Myers or, you know, behind a zombie movie or behind the witch, you know, where you have this isolation sort of like religious themes fear. I really think whatever this is pointing to this, this movie sort of indicates and, and kind of alludes to is, is sort of the root of all of that. Um, and it's just, it's, it's too much. So there, obviously there, there are a few themes here that I think line up with some of the other movies that I picked, you know, I, I picked the Babadook, I picked the witch, and I think there are some corollaries there. But whatever this is acts as so much more of a potent mirror to to whatever it is inside me that resonates with horror movies that it's just it's it's in a league of its own. As we've talked about before, this is literally the ten on my list. It's it's the only ten, and it's the movie by which all other horror movies, especially, are compared. Um, there's nothing that that sort of surpasses this. And honestly, I mean that that's true without even going into the philosophical stuff, without talking about existentialism or Sartre or theological concerns, you know, or or perhaps the reason why religion is what it is, you know. Beyond any of that, just as a work of art, this resonates with me so strongly that it it is clearly, clearly above and beyond any other movie in general, really, that I've ever seen. So that's why I chose this one. That's awesome. Yeah, I I really hope that by the end of tonight, some of that will be fleshed out for you. I mean, I think that initially, my initial thought is is the fundamentality of this film is um, it, it, it's more direct than mo- than pretty much every other film we've discussed, right? So, in all of the films that we've been discussing as part of this project, there's always a there's always a, a something in front of death. There's always a personification of death that's something else other than death, right? This just cuts through all that. It cuts through all of that, and it's a direct line to kind of the source, right? And not only, I mean, not only is that incredibly difficult to, to do, but to have a film uh, be able to tackle that sort of thing and do it in a way that's sophisticated and intelligent and makes you look inward and think about things. Um, if that's done well, if it's done this good, it in some sense, I think to some people could be more terrifying than any of the, than any Michael Myers and any Jason and any monster, right? Because this cuts to what's under the monster, right? Um, there's yeah, there's there's a real fundamentality to it. There's a few films that have had something like that that we've reviewed in this, but this may be by far the uh, the one that cuts uh, cuts the deepest. Um, what did you guys think of the film? I'll just throw it out here. Anyone want to hop in and just be like, why is this a good film? Why did you like this movie? Uh, hopefully, we can help Ben uh, try and figure out what makes this film so uh, so um, so potent for him. I actually have a question for Ben. Um, when I first heard that you guys were discussing this on a horror movie podcast, I was like, that's a great film. One of my favorite films, but it's not a horror film. Uh, so I sort of wonder, like, tell me why, uh, Ben, why you see it as a horror film um, and what, what aspects of the genre and what aspects of the seven, how do those two things link up for you? Sure. So whenever I think about some of the interviews that um, Ingmar Bergman ha- has had, whenever he talks about this movie and why he made it, I think what he sort of explains is that he was kind of working through his own fear of death. And like he, he describes himself as being sort of like a, a profoundly sort of afraid individual. Like he has a lot of a lot of this fear that sort of pervades his life. And this was kind of his way of working through a lot of that. And so I think that does come through and sort of makes it kind of a horror film because it is about that fear, but also because of some of the main themes that you have here, right? Yes, it is a movie about death. It is a movie about pestilence and plague and, and doubt and, and sort of like all of these themes that I think you could find in a horror movie. 
And I'm not, you know, obviously I, I'm not entirely sure if this would fit within what we would think of as modern horror. Like it, it definitely does stand out as being like a very unique and different sort of thing. But I think those themes are why I personally would consider this a, uh, a horror movie. Yeah, I, I see that. And I, and when I rewatched it, um, today actually before the before the podcast i started to see some of the horror elements that you're talking about um what's interesting for me is when i classify a horror film it's it's a film that is attempting to scare me and this seems like a film that is showing you what it's like to be scared of the thing that we're all going to uh deal with death and and the existential dread associated with it and uh, I think that's one of the most interesting things about the way Bergman positions the film vis-a-vis uh, -vis the audience so that it's, it's his fear, as you were saying, that is being on display here, not necessarily the film attempting to have an effect on the audience where it's attempting to basically scare the shit out of the audience like, like some of the other uh, staples of the horror genre you were talking about um, Michael Myers and Jason and things like that. So um, that is... It, it, it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I, I sort of, I like the way this, uh, I like the way the genre sort of bends to, to include the seventh seal in addition to, you know, the, the traditional stuff that we like. Yeah, we call it the blockbuster test, which obviously dates us horribly uh, in this podcast. We've had some films that get really close to like, is that really a horror film? Not really. We have another fellow who joins us uh, named Jonah. Some of the films that scare him the most are like, I guess we would consider them like romantic, <laughs> like not comedies, but like dramas, I guess. And they just, they, he, he scared, scares the death. He hates them. So um, it's really interesting kind of the plasticity that this genre has. Um, anyway, thought I'd throw that out there. Blue Valentine is a terribly scary movie for me and uh, closer. Um, so, but yeah, I, um, so yeah, I, I sort of like the fact that we're sort of including Seven Seal in a horror film, especially since it's about fear, but it's not about our fear as the audience. It's about the filmmaker's fear. Um, so. so Antonio, if you had your hand up, I don't want to cut you off, but then if I, I'm, I can jump in here unless you want to take, take the lead. No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, so one of the things I, I checked up on when I was doing some research on this uh, was sort of, you know, uh, religious demographics in Sweden. And um, I was, yeah, I, I knew that Sweden nowadays is not a terribly religious country. Um, and I knew it had been in the past, like, you know, obviously, you know, during the Crusades and the Middle Ages and so forth. Um, and what I found interesting was that, you know, that apparently the, the, this film was made right as the country was sort of going through a, a drop in sort of religious adherence. You know, in the early part of the 20th century, there was still a, a deeply religious culture. And, you know, something happened. God knows what, World War I or World War II, something, uh, Holocaust, uh, that, that made the people in Sweden start to sort of just you know, lose religious belief. And so the, 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 the vision of, uh, of, of this film sort of as, as an expression of like an entire country's you know, loss of faith or, or wrestling with faith, um, you know, which I, I don't think that was intended in Bergman's mind necessarily. Again, I think it was, it was personal for him. He was working through his own feelings. But those feelings seem to, re to resonate so much with his home country. Um, and coming to the story as an atheist, I find myself in, in some ways, I mean, in some ways scared and in some ways not scared by this film. Uh, I, you know, again, what, uh, what uh, 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 was Albert, Albertus Block, the, the knight's name, um, he, he, 
it seems like for him, it's not simply a question of avoiding death. I mean, again, he's trying to stave off death, obviously, but it looks like he's trying to keep death away long enough for him to figure out his thoughts on God. Uh, and wrestling with, with mortality and death is, of course, something that I've, I've, I've struggled with, sometimes with more success and sometimes with less. But I don't think, in my, as far as I can recall, in my life, I've never been afraid that there might not be a God. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been, you know, interested in the, in the, in the question. I've, I've, I've explored it. I've, I've cared about other people's struggles with, with faith. But personally, it's never scared me, the thought that there is no God, uh, that there, there is no afterlife or immortality. Uh, um, I've, I've had a mix of feelings, but it's never been uh, one that I would consider to be fear. So on this sort of bigger question about, you know, whether or not it qualifies as a horror film, you know, the, 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 the character of death, if you see him as representing death, just finality, um, yeah, again, that, 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 that confrontation with death, that, that trying to beat death at his own game, that's something which is obviously iconic, and like several people have said, it's been echoed by so many other filmmakers uh, since. Um, it really is the stand-in at this point. Um, but it seems to me that in the film, behind death, is, is again, it's the silence of God, right? You know, it's, it's that phrase from the book of Revelations, which is repeated at least twice in the film, you know? When the seventh seal opens, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Um, and that, I think, is clearly meant to be horrifying. It's meant to be something that, that, that strikes the heart, of, you know, at least the heart of the believer, if not the heart of everybody, as a terrifying prospect. Uh, but, but personally, I, again, that just, I don't feel that. that. That thought doesn't scare me. So if what's supposed to be scary about death is the fear that there is no God, there is no afterlife, then the film doesn't succeed in scaring me. Yeah, I take the complete opposite perspective on that just because I've, I've lost my religious faith. Um, there's a part in this film where Antonius uh, says, uh, to believe is to suffer, and it's like, it's like loving someone in the dark who never answers. And that is an absolutely terrifying thing to consider if you've been a religious believer, let's say, a good amount of your life, and um, for one reason or another, you find yourself doubting the entire apparatus that you've sort of built everything on. Um, if you haven't, if you're not a nominalist, let's say, and, and you're an evangelical or you're a devout Catholic or something, um, to lose that apparatus is part of the fear. It's not so much, I think, just the concept of the unknowingness of death or or or, or what's beyond. It's it, there's also the stripping away of answers. Um, it, you're coming from the person, I can totally see Garrett, how if, if you've been an atheist your whole life, how it may not be that scary. But if you're part of, if, if you've had part of that apparatus your whole life that tells you that you know the reasons that you exist, that you know why you're here and you know what happens after you die and you really sincerely believe that and you come to lose that, or at least like Antonius Block in this film, significantly doubted in, in the final days of your life, um, that is, I can't. I actually can't think of anything scarier. I, I'd be honest with you guys. Um, I was I was asking myself how personal I wanted to get with this. Um, but I mean, I'll throw this out here. When this happened to me, when I lost my faith, I didn't. There was a period of time for like at least seventy two hours. I didn't sleep. I, I could not fall asleep. I was scared to death of just not being. Of thinking, what happens now? Like I'm not ready. I had that same. You know, what was Antonius Block's first, his, one of his first lines to death is, you know, are you ready to come? And it, no, my body's ready, but I, I'm not ready, right? I'm butchering the quote. But, uh, um, the quote is, my flesh is afraid, but I'm not. But I'm not. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I, think, I think a good amount of this fear is going to come if part of answers already provided are stripped. 
an, an entire apparatus is stripped, Garrett. I mean, that's that's maybe how I would respond to that. If that happens, and Antonius is obviously a religious person, uh, um, Jans would be maybe more along the lines of where you're coming from. But for Antonius, I can, you got to you got to envision yourself being a religious believer. That this would be absolutely terrifying in light of in light of facing death. See, now that is fascinating because I actually, I had not been an atheist my whole life. I was raised a believer. Um, I was wow. never especially devout, I suppose. I mean, maybe you know, I don't know if I would ever have described myself as having a personal relationship with God the way some believers do, but I definitely believed. Um, and when I lost my faith, I, I too went through a crisis, but the crisis was not so much existential in the sense of what happens when I die, but rather social in the sense that I felt that my, my parents had lied to me, uh, that I had been deceived, and I, I wasn't sure who to trust anymore. So it was, it, it was about how I relate with the other people in my life, not about how I relate with my own mortality. That's um, interesting. So yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the fascinating and myriad ways in which people, you know, uh, the psychology of people losing their faith, you know, it's, it's whatever. Underlining both of those experiences though is, is kind of a common factor. And that is that, that um, the loss of a worldview is also in some sense, the loss of a world. Um, and so when, when we go through these sort of crises of faith, it's the the analogy is to like becoming bankrupt and being like cast out of your community in some way. It's it's it you you lose the currency with which you, you transact your your psychological life. You lose, um, you you lose the certainty that you had about certain life decisions that you make, certain modes in which you operate. You know, when you look at people on the street and they have a particular reaction to you, what what do you think to yourself? And before faith and after faith are radically different in, in the implications of what that contains. And that's, and, and that is, that's the fear at the, at the, at the edge of all of this is whether it's existential or whether it's social, ultimately um, it's a loss of a world. It's a loss of a foundational aspect of how you're approaching your life. And that is in, inherently scary, you know, instability to the to the human person beyond a certain point and into certain sectors is always going to be scary. And I think that whether whether it's something immediate like, you know, are my parents being honest to me? What do I tell my peers? Or something like, what is going to happen when I die? Or what does all this mean? It's still at the end of the day, a fear of losing something that used to underpin a certainty in your life. And I think that this comes through strongly in the film. Um, and, and indeed, you know, the film obviously has a very confessional aspect to it in a literal sense and obviously in a metaphoric sense as well. Um, and, you know, getting back to sort of the notion of is this a horror movie? I, I think that Jim's point about it being um, not intentionally looking to scare an audience is correct. I'm not sure if that makes it not a horror movie because in, you know, in, in a certain sense, it's also certainly when a horror director is making a horror movie, he's operating on a theory of mind. You know, he's looking for things that he thinks will scare you. And in order to arrive at that, he has to draw on what has scared him or what he's seen scare other people. And so, um, you know, Ultimately, every horror movie is an inward look at the psychology of the director as well, to some extent. And in this light, I think you can persuasively argue that that um, the Seventh Seal is a horror movie because obviously this is a horrific experience for the director that he was undergoing, and he uses that sort of mind's eye to recreate this and project it for other people to see. And 
he doesn't necessarily intend that the people who see it will be unnerved, but it is, but he is trying to project his unnervedness in a way that we can interact with and, and realize in some tangible way. And so in that sense, I'd say it's a horror movie. The other interesting aspect of it that is sort of uh, uh, points more toward it being a horror movie and sort of ties in with the confessional aspect is most horror movies, if you pay close attention to them, are horrific but redemptive. They have some sort of like, you know, the bad guy's defeated, even if, you know, his final act is to claw up through the ground or whatever. The bad guy's beaten and life is largely back to normal by the end of the movie in, in most cases. Um, and uh, this is actually a, a movie, The Seventh Seal, with a happy ending, if you pay close attention to it. Because, you know, yes, um, Antonius and his party all, you know, meet with death, but Antonius actually does defeat death. He doesn't beat him at chess, but he distracts death long enough for Joseph and Mary to escape with their child. And uh, obviously, with obvious, you know, hugely Christian metaphorical implications for, for that particular act, particularly in light of, of, you know, Antonius saying that he wants to do something that matters, etc. And so really the, the movie, although it ends um, with a lot of, with, with death, it does not end unhappily in a sense, you know, it ends triumphally in a sense, and it also doesn't end tragically in a classical sense, because, um, the, the determinism of the world is indeed thwarted by, uh, Antonius' actions, although death's inevitability continues, the form of it has actually changed a little bit by this one man's sort of existential scream into the heart of the world. So you say that uh, he... I think... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No. I, I was going to say, you, you, Antonio, you say he, that he saves Yoff and, and Mia uh, and their, their child, but uh, does, he, does he really? I mean, that's sort of the whole idea, right? Is, is, is that he's, he, all he's done is the exact same thing he's done for himself. He's merely delayed the inevitable, um, which is sort of you know, one of the, the sort of key existentialist themes. Uh, uh, I, but I, I, I caught actually a, a Woody Allen's analysis of, of, of the film. He actually sort of shares, I think, your, your, your interpretation that the ending actually is a happy ending, uh, or at least not necessarily a happy ending, but not a depressing ending, because it has a sense of exuberance about it. I mean, the, 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 the dance with death at the end is, is, is sort of celebratory in its way, um, not entirely morbid. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't know, I think it's, I agree with you that it's not a, a depressing ending. I'm not sure uh, if I would call it a happy ending though, because it, it's, it's, it's easy to just turn around and recognize that, that, that they've escaped, but only for, only for a short while. And well, that brings back to it. Let, let, me, let me rebut that. That's a, okay. Let, let me rebut that because because I think that you can actually make a case that it is that it is a fairly happy ending. So yes, the the bottom line is that you know death is still inevitable. It's only been put off for a time, etc. I'll I'll grant all that. But but look at where Antonius is psychologically at the end of the movie as opposed to where he is you know at the beginning and middle of the movie. He's much less tormented as he goes into the arms of death uh, than he was, you know, staring into it with with nothing to his name, you know, with 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 having done nothing of of worth, right? And in similar vein, yes, you know, Joseph and Maria and the baby have all been granted merely a respite. It's not it's not an actual eternal salvation. But that's also, you know, as the movie suggests to us previously with the case of Antonius that is a gap in which you can fit a lot of things that are meaningful, that, that acting to delay death. So 
while I, while I do understand the perspective that you're taking on it, I think that even, even given those terms, you can still view it in sort of a, a, a triumphal ending, like happy ending. I will certainly grant not exactly a happy ending, but a, but an ending of, of the triumph of the protagonists as opposed to the triumph of the antagonist. Structurally speaking, you're absolutely right. Um, I think when when Garrett brought up uh, Woody Allen and uh, Woody Allen actually ends one of his films, Love and Death. And one of the great things about watching Bergman films is you get to see how much Woody Allen stole from Bergman. And uh, he ends Love and Death with a literal dance between Boris and and a white clad death. And it's 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 a it's more exuberant dance. One of the things that when you were talking about the ending, Antonio and, and you, Garrett, when you were talking about the ending, um, you talk about how Joseph describes it as a dance with death. But the image that we see of those that train of people climbing up the hill is not that's not exuberant. At least it didn't give me a feeling of exuberance. It gave me a feeling of like, this is a long road to hoe where, you know, we're trudging on. And I think the Woody Allen reading of it is um, uh, the way Woody Allen ended Love and Death and the way Bergman ends uh, Seven Seal are two, they're two different dances. Not all dances I think are created equal in this sense, but I, I sort of wonder how that, jives with your interpretation well and then and then another interesting aspect of that well two two ask two things um, to note on that is first of all um the the process of dying which is depicted in the dance of death is much less horrific than looking at death is depicted previously in the movie you know the actual experience is a fairly neutral transistory kind of experience um and um as far as as far as um, you know, looking at it in a happy and as a as a more exuberant ending or not, I don't think that the that Antonius and company you know passing into the shadows is is necessarily the exuberant part of the ending. Rather, the exuberant part of the ending is the fact that there is there is still hope. You know that the Holy Family has made it to Egypt, so to speak. Um, but at the same time, I think there's an interesting recursion here because obviously the movie is confessional. You know, and so and so, what we're seeing is really kind of a Greek chorus of Bergman's various inner voices that are speaking different aspects of his thoughts to us about about death and different perspectives that he thinks that we can take on that he can take on it. And so, you know, the fact that it ends happily, Bergman might concede, is a weakness of of the narrative. You know, he might he might say that that it is his human weakness which led him to give it a happy ending, despite the fact that there are no happy endings. And, and so if we look at this in sort of the confessional mode, we could actually look at, at the ending as sort of, as sort of a cynical self-admission of the director's own inability to, at the end of the day, confront the magnitude of the, of the issue before him. And so he takes the easy way out and just says, well, there's still hope. See, now I, I, I find all this very, very interesting. And I, I totally agree with you, Antonio, that you know, if, we, if we take Antonius's perspective and, and, and view it just what it's like for him at, at the end of the film versus the beginning, you're right. It's, it, it's definitely an improvement. Um, uh, it's, it's moving to a state of uh, 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 not even resignation, but something higher than resignation. Um, uh, not quite conquest or victory, but in that, that sort of ballpark. But 
if you take it from the point of view of the squire, I mean, it seems to me that the, the squire from start to end sort of, you know, he, he sees death as just, as, as bitter, you know, as something he's just angry about. Um, and he never seems to change his perspective. Um, he has this sort of a, a, a brutality about him. It, it, it's not quite as anguishing, you know, the thought of death isn't as anguishing for him as it is for Antonius. He's not having the existential struggle. He's resigned from the get-go, but resigned in a way that, that is in no way sort of victorious. It's just, we're all going to die. Uh, that's all there is to it. Um, there's no point in struggling against it. Um, it, it just sucks. Um, so from, from, I think from, from his point of view of the character, I, I, I don't think it's a happy ending or even, even sort of a, a positive ending. I think it's just sort of a vindication of, yeah, this is, I could have told you it was going to end this way. This is the way of all flesh. Yeah, and for that very reason, I think it's, um, oh, okay. Um, Go ahead, Ben. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Um, for that very reason, I think that <clears throat> I, I would sort of describe this movie and, and, maybe this is sort of like a crude way to kind of like approach it or like sort of describe it, but I almost think of this as being plotless because I really don't see there being any kind of a resolution or conclusion at the end. You know, you have the dance of death or the dance macabre and you see them sort of like making that journey, but I don't necessarily see that as celebratory or even morbid. It's just sort of like, it depicts the sense that you have that, you know, there are these things that happen for a while and everyone kind of plays their own part and does their thing. And it's just sort of underlines the, 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 the silliness of the whole thing. Um, you know, halfway through the movie, you kind of see where Antonius is in the church and he, and he has this sort of like profoundly existential moment. Let me, and let me actually read this quote here really quick. What he says is, this is my hand. I can move it, feel the blood pulsing through it. The sun is high in the sky and I, Antonius block and, and playing chess with death. So like you have this here where you see the futility, you see the death here, but he's still, he's going to do it anyway. He's going to, he's going to go on his journey. He's going to have his pursuit and he's going to do his thing because that's, that's sort of what he's doing. That's kind of, I mean, it's not like a solution. It's not a resolution. That's just what he's going to do. He's going to move forward as if he has some semblance of control or free will, but you get a little bit further in the movie when they're, they're burning that poor girl who they think is a witch and you know, he and Jans are looking on as she sort of gazes out in this kind of like wide-eyed terror. And he says, you know, her terror is our own as if like they're, they're, they're sort of like thinking about, you know, what is it that she sees? Does she see something supernatural? Does she see the beyond? Or is it perhaps that she sees nothing and that's what terrifies her. And that's the very heart of what also terrifies them. So even going from that point where it looks like Antonius has kind of like that, that resolution and that courage, you can easily just switch back off to the other side of that and still have that deep fear and dread. And, you know, at the end of the day, like there's, there's really no, there's no solving that. Yes, you have, Yoff and, and Mia and they kind of get out of the uh, they kind of get out of like the heart of, of, of the problem there they escape they, they don't get killed you know they move on and that sort of symbolizes I think as it's described early in the movie he sort of symbolizes kind of the human spirit to sort of you know sort of like look past death and just sort of see hope and new life but that doesn't sort of make it go away I don't know it's just like there's 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 these playing of different parts here but there isn't really some moving from one place to another all of this just sort of happens and then eventually it stops happening. Uh, Okay. Yeah. um, I think to, to sort of explore that point, I wonder what would happen uh, to this movie had Antonius won the game of chess. Um, 
Now, obviously, Bergman's that's not the that's not the movie that Bergman wants to make. But I believe when you say when you call the film plotless, I think that there is a plot. It goes from I'm going to win this game of chess. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to stave off uh, elimination, so to speak. And and then I'm going to go do something good. He has one line there like uh, I I want to do something worthwhile with my life um, before before I die. I'm butchering that quote, but it's something along those lines. And I think that he goes, Antonius goes from a point of uh, defiance to depression to some form of acceptance at the end when he uh, messes up the game and uh, buys the uh, buys the other uh, Joseph and Mary, I guess we're calling them. Um, uh, buys them a, a chance at 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 you know, getting to Egypt, as as the metaphor goes. Um, but if he had won that game of chess, I think that we come with a different movie, and I think that that's. But I I think the point I'm trying to make here is that. Antonius believes that he can, that, that this is a thing worth able to be accomplished and that this film is a plot. I contend that it has a plot going from, I think I can do it. I can't do it. Let me see what else I can uh, accomplish, even though I'm not going to win. And then finally acceptance that the fact that they got out of the, the storm, um, Oh, and yeah, also, think... oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, also, just just to your point, Garrett, um, you made a point earlier about the squire. Um, when he is about to die, his last line is, um, is uh, "Will you go quietly?" Yes, but under protest, which is incidentally another line that Woody Allen stole um, from uh, from Bergman as well. So, to the character of of Jones, the squire. And and uh, Antonius Block, I think the what the possibly the most revealing single like five seconds of the movie for each of them is really just their actual introductions, um, and and it's really interesting to note specifically how they are framed and what they do. And so when Antonius is revealed, you know they're both sprawled from the the ocean vomits them out like Jonah, you know, and and just sprawls them on the beach. And they're both like passed out. And then Antonius wakes up and his first action is to turn immediately to the thing that he just, that just spat him out, this hostile entity that nearly drowned him. And he goes back to it and he washes his face with it. And then he turns around and, and proceeds out. And then Jons is, he's, he's face down on the beach and he has a drawn sword and in one hand and his scabbard in the other. And when he wakes up, he just gets on his feet and just goes. He just gets straight off the beach. And I think that these, these two introductions are very heavily laden with symbolism and, and frame the essential aspects of the character. You know, um, um, Antonius is sort of, is, is caught between. He's, his, in, his sort of, his, his inability to, to resolve his conflicts is his weakness. Um, and so this is symbolized by the fact that he returns to returns to his vomit, as it were. He turns around and he goes back into the ocean and and covers himself in it before he before he goes forth. And uh, in the sim and and so this the, the resolution there is that he finally does come to it to acceptance. He finally realizes that he can't uh, defeat death, 
that he that that he has you know a limited amount of time and then he does something meaningful with that limited amount of time and that's how he he, he reaches resolution in a very literal kind of sense um and then uh Jones, by contrast his his uh conflict is that his he is cynical he's already seen through the bullshit and he knows where it all ends and his struggle is to find humanity through cynicism. You know, he's a bloody man. That's why he's depicted with a sword. And um, and his struggle is resolved through the fact that he saves multiple lives at, at various points through the film when a cynical, you know, truly nihilistic individual would have just said, I mean, he's going to die one way or another. What what point is it if I intervene? And, but he does actually take the take the take a point to intervene at several stages in the movie, and this is sort of his his grasping of the existential question. They grasp it in different ways, but they're both striving to accomplish something meaningful while looking into the face of futility, while preserving their essential humanity. Yeah, and that right there, I mean, that, that's that's straight out of Camus. It's uh, you know, his his novel, uh, uh, the, the the plague, um, which was you know, about ten years or so before um, Seven Seal. It's uh, the the doctor character whose name's escaping me at the moment, but uh, you know, he he's sort of having a similar sort of existential crisis. He doesn't believe in God. He believes we're all going to die eventually. But why? So why does he bother try to save people from the plague? What's the point in uh, in in struggling with this limited time on Earth to save human beings who are all destined for the grave anyway? And so I, I see that exact same sort of existential crisis and existential question uh, there. And uh, and I, I I I agree with you in sort of in the way he his his struggle is to try to find humanity, which it's not you know it, it's not clear even to himself how he can uh, make sense of that. Um, but yeah, that, that final line, Jim, about how I'll, I'll go, but I'll go under protest. Again, it, it, that does for me underscore the difference. Uh, Woody Allen makes that a comic line. He makes it funny, but I said, I find no funny in, in no humor in, uh, in the way Bergman portrays it. So maybe I guess what I'm getting at here is I suppose perhaps I identify a little bit more with Jans than I do with, uh, uh, Albert, uh Antonius, uh, uh, in this film. I don't know. Maybe. One thing I would definitely like to point um, out too is that there is a little bit of a uh, selectivity in uh, how how Jan sort of um, exercises that. I mean, yes, he does step in and save um, the girl, you know, whatever that uh, Ravel, I think the character's name is, that comes in and steals the bangle. You know, he he steps in and he stops anything bad from happening. But later on, you see in the movie when they're in the forest, and that I, I believe it's that same character stumbles out and he's screaming and he's asking for help and a drink of water. You know, he's like, no, don't. I mean, he he's already gone. There's nothing you can do for him. And he sort of explains that to that girl as being sort of like, don't you see I'm trying to console you? So while, you know, he is, yes, he, he's trying to hold out sort of hope and, and sort of like protest and fight back for the people who he can help. You know, he's definitely not uh, being very charitable to the people that he sees as being already too far gone and just sort of lets them go in a very sort of cold way. Doesn't get close, doesn't talk, doesn't offer any water. It is what it is. Yeah, to people who've lost their humanity already, he has no mercy. And and that's depicted in the form of the seminarian. I forget what his name is. But but the fact the fact that he exploited people before and is unrepentant about it and exploits people again and then doesn't, you know, measure his own limits and then finally comes to just a horrific end, uh, at that point, um, Jans is totally unmotivated to offer any assistance. His assistance is offered to the innocent. And that's, I think, an important an important distinction that is made here in the movie is is more innocent people are offered 
more assistance and are seen as being worthy of more assistance than people who have who have transgressed against uh, their communities in some important way. Yeah, I think that the reading that you gave of the film as a whole, Antonio, uh, was was spot on. Um, but I, you know, there is a not. It's not a straight line for Jans. Like it's not a straight line of I'm gonna redeem. I'm gonna do is do the good that I can do, like Ryu in uh, in in the plague. Um, I think that this sort of brings us to Jans in particular brings us to um, the existentialist parts of this this film. Um, and I, I, Garrett, you probably can, uh, and the rest of you can probably summarize and talk about existentialism a little bit better than I can. But sort of the the baseline existentialism for dummies is is essentially life is shit, but try anyway. And I think Jans clearly embodies that kind of um, that kind of uh, character and that kind of uh, way of, of of approaching the rest of the world. I think Camus should have named it the Black Plague. That would have that would have been helpful. Um, so if I could just add one thing, I saw Antonio going back to Antonius. I know we're kind of on Jans now, but um, I, I saw Antonius's victory is is. Uh, if you want to call it a victory, uh, I don't know if it's a somber victory, but um, the, the most meaningful sort of victorious moment for him, for me in this film was when he sat with everyone and was enjoying like, the, I think it was the strawberries and milk. Um, and he says, uh, he says, I shall remember this hour of peace, the strawberries, the bowl of milk, your faces in the dusk, Mikhail asleep, Yoff with his lute. I shall remember our words and shall bear this memory between my hands as carefully as a bowl of fresh milk. And I believe at that point, this is, at, this is, uh, I believe at one of the points in the film where he's, he's definitely done the work of having at least one of the initial confrontations with, uh, with death and he's, he's struggling and, and asking questions. And this is after that. And I mean, just the ability to be able to say, to hold off, save death for the minute and to have that moment, I think to me is a, is a, is a, a victory in and of itself. It ultimately doesn't remove death. It may not even remove the sting of death, but it certainly is an experience that um, he would not have had if at the beginning of the film, he would have just accepted death's uh, invitation. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I saw that as maybe the most meaningful part of the film. Yeah, I think he even makes a, a point to say that, you know, even though it's only going to last for a short time, all of those other troubles that he had seem, you know, almost so insignificant while he's sitting there with them, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that might be the key to sort of unlocking the entire sort of hopeful aspect of the movie. Yeah, no, that's a, it's an absolutely wonderful scene, um, and, and you know, not the least of which because it does sort of show how you know, death intrudes on us in our most intimate moments. You know, even you know for for the existentialist at least, even when we're happy, our mind sort of comes back to this thought that this too shall pass, that uh, that uh, even this wonderful moment is going to slip through our grasp, and oh, there's death calling me back to play the game over there. Um, and you know, again, it, it's obviously it was the, the the figure of death. You know, uh, obviously, this is not something uh, uh, that 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 was original to this film. The, the personification of death as Grim Reaper uh, is as old as medieval art, at least, if not older. Um, but it does, I think, sort of speak to something. You know, very, very curious about how humans deal with death. Right? Why? Why do we have this compulsion to reify death, to 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 embody him as a person? Um, 
and it, it seems to be again, it's it's precisely the psychological function of what's happening in this film because that's somehow a way for us to wrap our minds around death. If we imagine death as a person, you know, uh, we understand people, we understand their motives, we understand how they work. So if we can imagine death to be a person, to be like us in some way, then somehow that gives us a proxy for understanding what death is, why it operates the way it does, um, and that somehow. That, that that glimmer of a grasp on, on on this this you know incredibly vexing process of understanding death uh, uh, somehow gives us a, a degree of comfort. Um, so by personifying death, we somehow take away the sting. We make it less terrifying, uh, even though now you can look at look death in the eyes. Literally, uh, it, it's still terrifying. It's somehow less terrifying than if death isn't concrete if death is just this amorphous thing which we we have no grasp on that's even more terrifying did you feel like this film personified death though i mean i suppose you could i, I mean in a literal sense it does but I, he the character of death in this film is never I, it's certainly not a round character he's just this chess player who shows up and takes people away i I think of when we, oh God, I'm about to compare Seventh Seal to this. Um, but like in Bill and Ted's bogus journey. <laughs> oh my God, we've done that so many times now. That movie has come oh. the last three sessions. This is amazing. Continue now, really. And yeah, but in Bill and Ted's bogus journey, death is a, a round character. He's someone you can negotiate with. He's someone you can talk to. He's somebody you can make jokes with. And Death in this movie is is a he's a dick. Uh, I, well, he's not even a dick. He's not even mean enough to be a dick. He's, he's just sort of this fort. He's a machine. That's perfect. He's a machine. So what? I, what it, go ahead. Honestly, what it resembles the most is um, in Kabuki. There is a there's a particular part played by Kabuki actors where they dress up all in completely black and they are designed to be elements of the background. So they like hold props that are supposed to be leaning up against walls and, and stuff like that. And, and the, the idea is that, that they, they perform necessary stage functions, but they aren't themselves characters in any meaningful sense. So you're, the audience is supposed to pretend that they're not there. The black is supposed to symbolize that, that they're not really there. They're just standing in for the things that would be there in real life. And I think that uh, this is very much similar to the way that death is treated in the, in the movie. Death wears a bunch of different faces. He's the priest in the church. He's the chess player. He's, you know, he, he's, he appears in a number of different guises and, and appears at a number of different times. In, and, and the point of it is that he is a, that he, exactly, that he is, that he's a presence. That he is that he is something that you can't escape. That he's that he is behind the face of everyone that you're looking into, etc. The idea is that that he precisely is not exactly a character. He's he's something that that your dialogue with is indistinguishable from you talking to yourself about this particular issue. And indeed, this is shown by the fact that Antonius Block is playing a chess a chess game with someone that no one else can see except for one other character. Right, and that's, that's what I wanted to go to, because Yoff can see him, right? But Yoff also is sort of depicted as a little crazy, right? That both that he makes up stories, which apparently are completely unreal, um, and also has questionable visions. He sees the, the Virgin Mary when we first meet him, right? And so, I mean, I think we, we can 
we can take the film this way, as, as death is not actually literally being present, as being some sort of imaginary projection by uh, 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 either Antonius and or Yoff or something like that, um, which definitely would account for him, him, him not being a rounded character, like you say, Jim. But if we do take it that way, um, then in some ways, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, that's kind of, in fact, even more depressing, right? Because, you know, in, in as much as sort of, you know, if, if Yoff is sort of, a, is, is the fool, as it were, and Antonius is the, the, the serious man, um, and if they're both sort of the ones who, who, who delusionally see death as a presence, um, then that, that's sort of, you can't help but see that as a commentary on, uh, on people in general, right? You know, it's the, 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 the idea that human beings are, are, are in, in, a, in a very real way, lying to themselves and fabricating a story about uh, how to understand death or, or, or how we escape death, um, when in fact that's all just nonsense. When, when it, it, there is no death there, death is just this amorphous, non, uh, uh, incomprehensible force which, which comes for us all. You can't even put a face to it. You can't even call it a thing um uh and and that's like i said that's, that's, even right. that's even more terrifying for me well if i could though I, I do think i have one at least possible counterpoint to that and it's that you know again going back to that scene in the church whenever uh whenever antonius is having his confessional there are a few points in there where you 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 really at least i did get the strong sense that there's some empathizing going on where he's talking about the silence of god throughout all of this you know he's he's fighting in the crusades for 10 years and all that seems meaningless and now he comes back and there's this terrible plague and where is god in all of this but you you see death sort of responding and then sort of finishing his thoughts and kind of like commiserating with him a little bit, almost as if death as an entity has those same concerns. And just for a brief second, I do think you see a little bit of what might be perhaps mistaken as humanity there. Um, and I really enjoyed those. And perhaps you, you could also take that to be, yes, that's a conversation that Antonius is having with himself. Maybe that's sort of his internal dialogue and maybe the entire chess game is him sort of coming to grips with death as not a person, but as like a phenomenon in his own way. But I mean, at least in a couple scenes there, you really do kind of get something that almost looks like character development. Um, I, I don't necessarily know if it's intended to be like that, but it at least looks like that. Well, just the phrase, I am unknowing, I felt like was, that was surprising to me. That was kind of shocking to me. I mean, we think of death as this sort of, especially if it's personified as this being that has some sort of knowledge that knows something beyond us. It's taking us somewhere. It's doing something. It's functioning in a way that's above us. Uh, one of the things I really, really loved about death in this film is that it was a taker of bodies. It wasn't a taker of souls. Um, if this, and it kind of can't be a taker of souls, right? If it was a taker of souls, then Antonius Block, a lot of the stuff he's trying to <laughs> investigate or sort of answered for him, right? But I, I do, you, I can't think of many other movies where, where any kind of personification of death is a, a, a taker of, of people and not their souls. Do you know what I mean? That it's, it's, it ends with their body here. And I, I felt like that was unique. It could just be because I haven't seen many films that have this in it. But um, it stood out as, as um, one of the better parts of the movie for me. But yeah, anyway, to go back to your point, Ben, um, just the fact that he didn't know was to me a, a, a shock. And it said that there's a, a kind of, not a humanness, but a, an ignorance, let's say. And an ignorance is something that we apply to human, to, to, to people, you know? So I don't know. Um, uh, in point... Go ahead. Oh, well, just quickly. And there are a few films that, that personified death as taker of bodies, but most of them are 
taking off of most of them are stealing from Southern Seal. Uh, so uh, Woody, Woody Allen has done it. They're um, all Woody Allen films, I bet. Yeah, they're pretty much. Um, <laughs> they're actually Les Miserables, the film version of Les Miserables. Uh, he bodily goes with um, with Fantine at the end. Um, so that, but then uh, that's a completely different film in a completely different context. Doing uh, doing a mission of Christianity, which is almost completely, which is. Uh, uh, sort of antithetical to to Bergman, but uh, yeah, just a real quick thing. Uh, go ahead, Gary. Um, no, I I, I kind of wanted to somewhat change gears a little bit because I, I I wanted one of the, the, the a pair of scenes which really jumped out to me, uh, to me uh, this time around viewing it was the, the conversation that Jan's had with the painter in the church. Uh, you know, we've been we've been talking about whether this is a horror movie, and I'm I'm pulling up the script here and 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 looking at the scene like you know where it's great. It says like you know. Uh, um, uh, you know, why do you paint such nonsense? Talking about the dance of death. Uh, um, and Painter says, I thought it would serve to remind people that they must die. And Jan says, well, that's not going to make them feel any happier. Why should one always make people happy? It might not be a bad idea to scare them once in a while. They'll close your eyes and refuse to look at your painting. Oh, they'll look. A skull is more interesting than a naked woman. If you scare them, they'll think. And if they think, they'll become more scared. Uh, and they'll run into the, uh, the arms of the priests. Um, that, and, that, that, that line, that whole thing, explains why The Exorcist is popular. I just want to throw that out there. We went through this in our Exorcist thing, the resurgence bringing people back to the church. Anyway, just yeah. to, uh, and, well, to follow up on that real quick, um, also, you know, in, in the movie, that's, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly uh, the tragic flaw or one of the tragic flaws of Antonius is, you know, he goes into the church. He is persuaded into the in, into the church despite his doubts by the same sort of of tales and forces and and psychological pressures that that are mentioned by the painter. And what does he find in the church? He finds something that hastens his demise, that guarantees his demise, that that betrays him. He finds betrayal of what he brought in is you know the knowledge of how he might defeat death with a clever strategy and instead what he finds there is death listening and just taking notes and i wanted to pair that scene with a scene that happens a short while later where where there's the, the public flagellation going on you know that you have the, the 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 fools the jesters doing this sort of body song and dance um uh, and you know people are paying attention but they're not really riveted they're sort of distracted but then in the middle of it it's interrupted by this you know parade of of penitents being uh, whipped and flagellating themselves and then the monk comes up and condemns everyone to hell and everyone's paying attention then everyone's riveted so it's like, like yeah they, they are paying more attention to the skull than to the naked woman so that's sort of the 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 projection is right um but that seemed to me to be the only scene um, uh, maybe that in the, in the confessional scene where sort of religion as a social institution is sort of called out to task, where it's presented in a deliberately unflattering way. Um, there's, there's, you know, uh, it, it seems to be much more existential rather than social in the film overall, but I got the definite sense in that scene um, that, that Bergman was sort of looking down his, and I mean not looking down his nose, but the, uh, uh, presenting in an unflattering light the, the, the sort of the doomsday preachers, you know, who say you're all condemned, you're all condemned, none of you can be saved. Um, uh, and how dehumanizing that is, and how horrible of a thing that is to witness, how, how human, because again, like the painter says, we can't look away, um, but nonetheless, how unhelpful, how that does nothing for us in an existential sense. 
And what was interesting about that scene was the depiction of Christ in on those on those crucifixes. I mean, I don't know about sort of medieval art and depictions of Christ, but it almost looked like a macabre buddy Christ from uh, Dogma in the on the crucifixes. And I I was I wondered what that I mean that's obviously intentional. And I'm wondering why Bergman would choose that depiction of Christ on the crucifixes because it is a it's a weird face. And the idea that it could be looking down as sort of uh, painting the church in an unflattering light makes sense to me. But I, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if there isn't anything more to that. I, I sort of wonder about the rest of your thoughts on that. actually reminded me of that was it the, the woman like uh, 20 years ago or 10 years ago messed up that jesus painting i forget the name of it how she totally like she was tasked with like restoring it or something i don't have you guys heard of this and she totally messed up the face it was actually when i initially saw it on the film i was like that's what it reminded me of it's horrifying that is, that is literally all i have to add that that's it just that it reminded me of a, of a messed up painting well, well in, in some ways i think that um you know it was definitely sort of designed in such a way and like this I, I can't I can't really speak to the the reason that it was done like that in the film specifically, but just as a tool, I, I really think that it's designed in sort of that way where you see these very somber, um, in pain looking depictions of Christ on the cross is meant to kind of like tap into our empathy and something like you can almost like relate to this face in, in some way. I don't know, or like or maybe it is <clears throat> in the movie like intended to sort of like make fun of that a little, a little bit because in that scene I definitely get the sense that you have a very strong juxtaposition of what the fools are doing, but what the church is also doing it, it seems to be very similar in a lot of ways. So while you know you have two or three people having their little show and their song and dance about death, then you have a much larger crowd come in and yes it has a much larger impact. But what truly is the difference? And sort of you have their, they have their props, they have their musical instruments and they have their big song and dance and like they do their thing. And it, I think it's meant to just sort of be depicted in the same way that the fools are depicted. Um, and also just like to follow up on that a little bit less. I mean, when they leave the town, I think that's fantastic as well. You know, you have them sort of walking out and you have that above view where they're just sort of walking by in their train, they're flagellating themselves. And then they slowly sort of dissipate and dissipate until you get this like solid 30 seconds of silence and nothingness. Um, just, just absolutely beautiful where you see sort of like the, the futility of what they're doing. You know, they have their, their brief moment where they have their little reaction and their song and dance and then, and then they're gone. Um, very, very sort of like impermanence kind of thing going on there. It was a fantastic scene overall, really. An important aspect of that scene is also that they're flagellating each other. Like there's, it's not just people self-flagellating. It's, um, it's other people hitting people with the plague. And I think that there's, to your point, Garrett, it's, it's more, it's also about how, um, how religion causes people to condemn others as sinners, even as part of their own group. I mean, it's deeply sadistic, right? I mean, again, that's why I sort of see it as a social criticism, uh, at least that scene, um, because yeah, somehow, you know, these people have been convinced that they deserve this or uh, that, that, that this is a good thing um, and that everyone else deserves it too. And, you know, I mean, if I, I think, 
overall, the film, I think, presents faith in an incredibly complex and sophisticated way. But this is, I think, one of the, one of the, the darker elements I mean, of the social institution. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly not the kind of thing that I think can serve as recruitment for, for the faith. Yeah, it's it's there's there's a depiction of basically I, th I think the ju major juxtaposition for that scene within the film is the scene with uh, where, where they're all sitting around sharing breaking bread together. And it strikes me. It's, go ahead. No, so I, said, I think the major juxtaposition is, is what happens right before. It's the sex scene behind the bushes. You know, and again, and that's sort of like that's the deliberate contrast, right? You know, the, the, the people will look at the skull more than the naked woman. You know, the, the, while the, the the one fool is backstage and meets the girl, and they're having sex while the the horror is going on, and you know, we look away from the sex scene, and what we see is the flagellation. What we see is 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 the pestilence, pestilence, and the death. Um, and you know, we're doing exactly what 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 the painter says we would do. In in Christian in terms of Christian theme though, um, where where what you see here is you know the, these the, you know these penitents that are that are basically looking to get at um, Christ through the suffering of Christ. You know they're they're flagellating each other, they're inflicting suffering on one another in order to participate sufficiently in the sufferings of Christ. And and so in a sense in the sense they're sort of people who've accepted the existentialist project as well in a kind of a twisted way. You know they, these are people who have embraced the notion that they are destined to suffer and by celebrating it rather than by and so by fanaticism they're sort of overindulging in in the existential cynicism in a sense and and this is this is kind of reflect this is kind of um and and they're doing this in a fervent hope that the future will be glorious that there that there will be glory in the future and and this is juxtaposed in sort of the meal that is shared with the holy family and and you know again this, the christian symbolism here is kind of inescapable in that they're sitting down with you know you know the the the, the crusader knight is sitting down with the holy family and and his great joy rather than to go through all the suffering that he's gone through rather than to to seek to attain christ through through this sort of penitent uh uh you know sadistic masochistic kind of frame that the that the other equally faithful types have have done um, the true, the true, the true access to the Holy Family is just to sit down and share a bowl of fresh milk. Like that's that's the secret. The secret is not to go through all these motions and erect all these icons and beat each other into a bloody pulp. The secret is to sit down with the whole with, with someone named Joseph and someone named Mary and their child and share a bowl of fresh milk. That's how you get to the Holy Family. If I could, too, there's there's a couple of things that I want to say about that. Um, you know, I think we're we're I think you alluded to it um, very well, but just to just to put this out there as like sort of an explicit point, I really wanted to kind of look at why why they're doing this, like why what the motivation is before for both the uh, the theater troupe as well as kind of the church here. I think just to just to point this out is that the reason that they're doing this, of course, is that they're afraid. So, you know, they both seen sort of death. They have their understanding of death. They have very different reactions to it. But for the faithful, it's more acceptant or it's less it's it's less bad. <laughs> it's less horrific to whip yourself and see yourself as deserving of the Black Plague than it is to face the reality that sort of everything is just kind of utterly meaningless. So like they would rather whip themselves and, and bleed and suffer than face this one truth. 
Um, so I thought that that was definitely kind of interesting, but also just going back to this holy family. Um, I think that's, um, that is very strongly depicted. And yes, there are a lot of Christian themes here, but I think it's a little bit deeper than that too. I think that we have that sort of, um, that archetype, but it doesn't necessarily need to be Christian theology that points it out. I think it's there regardless of, of Christianity. I think it's something deeper in human psychology. And a lot of this movie sort of alludes to that, but probably uses Christianity as a tool to point it out. Yeah, the notion of the of you know the husband, wife, and child, and and as 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 the core you know sort of nuclear family unit, and especially as as sort of the thing that we need to preserve, or the thing we need to save from persecution, the thing that is a a a, a an icon of holiness to us, you know, is is the the family unit, the relationship, the the sort of innocent and loving relationship between all three. And the the need to preserve that for the good of the species, the sort of categorical primal imperative that goes along with that symbolism. So I have a question, and this kind of goes to Ben's last. I think Ben touched on this a, a second ago with with the fear element. Um, the 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 line that stuck out to me. There's a bazillion lines that stick out to me, but one of them was um, when Antonius says, uh, "We must make an idol of our fear and call it God." Um, I, I I wasn't entirely sure what to make of that. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that particular line. What 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 did you guys think he was saying in that? I think the uh, the if I'm remembering your line correctly, I think the following is something that I wrote down as well. God is both impossible to ignore and impossible to believe in, and I think that is that's sort of the crux of Antonius's. Um, crisis of faith that goes that that works as a through line for this film i mean even his entire interactions with death uh, are about or his entire interactions with death are about trying to figure out um what's beyond and then his interactions with the uh the witch quote unquote um are all about do you see the devil tell me if you see the devil because if you do then that means that there must be a god um, the existence of devil sort of in, indicates an existence of God. And so I think this, the line that you're quoting, um, it really strikes to what I think is Antonius's primary, primary internal conflict in this film. And that's, I can't ignore the fact that I, there's something to this God thing, but there's so much other bullshit that makes me that that makes me question it, um, and I, I think that's sort of the crisis of faith that a lot of uh, a lot of people of faith definitely, and a lot of people um, who have lost their faith go through. Uh, we were talking about this sort of crisis of faith and how some of us have lost our faith and some of us said, well, I, nobody has said we haven't, um, but uh, I. I I think this is the, the central, like, that's it. Like, that's the, that it crystallizes that for me. At least that's my response to that line. And that ties in also with the silence of God very, very powerfully, right? Because, you know, the, the whole point of, of, you know, the God being something immediate and yet, as, as it was said, you know, impossible to ignore, but also impossible to believe in. The impossible to the impossibility of ignoring him is simply the magnitude of the creation, so to speak. You know, we're we're simply overwhelmed by on on all fronts by the majesty of everything that we perceive, and so we we assume it must come from you know somewhere. 
and the impossible the impossible to believe in is you know we see this this order in in the universe that you know seeming order in the universe and we call out to it and we hear a, a deafening echo in response you know there is nothing there's nothing there that is that is doing anything more than absorbing what we put in and just reflecting it right back to us in some way shape or form and indeed you know this is this is what's talked about in making an idol of our fear you know we we are afraid of the void we're afraid of death and so what we do is we take that fear of death and we we make an idol out of it and then we worship the idol because the and and believe in our heart of hearts that it will give us eternal life because that takes the fear of death away that's the worship of the idol and I think there's, there's a connecting point there. I mean, this is Antonius who's just coming back from fighting the Crusades. Um, and he's living in a religious society. So not only is it the awe of the creation, but it's also, I've, I spent the last 10 years fighting for this thing. All of these other people believe in it. How can all of this shit all be wrong? Like, how can the thing that I fought for for 10 years and the thing that um, these other, it, it sort of goes back to Garrett's point, but the social aspects of faith and religion, um, how can all of these people be wrong too? Yeah. Speaking of, of fear of the void, um, was it just me or did the mute girl at the end seem to have less fear than everyone else when being confronted with death? Please tell me that was just me. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that earlier on in the movie, it's made very clear that she's watched her entire family be taken by the plague and she's there alone. And, you know, she goes off with these complete strangers yeah. because it's better to do that than to be totally alone. But she's already faced death. So it's, I don't think it's really shocking to her. It's not a surprise. Like she's well, not. But it's also like a comfort, right? Like she has she, uh, almost as a smile at the end. It's like comforting an old friend or something. It's what is it that she says? Her only line in the movie, it is done. Right. It, yeah. it, I totally get less day. Yeah. And, and, and if, I, if I recall, she's the one who falls to her knees, right? We, 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 you had that wide shot of all four of them and they each sort of say their, their, their sort of final scenes. And then she just sort of falls to her knees and the camera follows her down. And she has this, I mean, what I, what I interpreted in her face, was sort of a look of awe and reverence uh, for death, um, and and yeah, there's there's a beauty in her face as she has she she has these tears and this this uh, you know, the death is release I suppose might be what's happening. Absolutely, yeah. and and if you think about Antonius's wife too, like there's there's a really good um, sort of corollary to that because she greets him and calls him noble lord. You are welcome in our house. I don't really see a whole lot of fear of death as an entity in the ending of this movie for these characters, they all greet him as sort of a friend. Um, and that sort of, I think touches on one of the deeper themes of this movie too, because I really don't think it's meant to be that death itself is, is kind of the source of the terror. It's, it's something else. It's that there's nothing beyond that. It's that there's nothing to give life itself meaning, but death itself, like that transition really is just sort of, you know, I don't know. Like if you think about some um, Ingmar's, uh, if you think about Bergman's sort of like description of why he, he depicted death the way he did, he, he intended death to be in his words, a white faced clown. He's, he's supposed to be sort of like this kind of like silly sort of thing. He's not supposed to be terrifying. And I really do think that comes through and, and serves the way that their sort of group reacts to him at the very end of the movie. And it's interesting that it's Mia and then Mute Girl. So it's women who tend to 
look at death, you know, in that sort of way. It's really interesting. I found it accidental or what. Um, yeah, two points. First um, is uh, everybody reacts calmly except for Jans, who's, who's also, who's, I'll go, but under protest. Um, the other, you're sort of giving me a, a diving board for uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with this film. That's, in fact, that's one thing that keeps this film from being a 10 for me. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of defend this case a little bit more, but I wanted to ask a question first, is you said it's only women who respond to death this way. I wondered if anybody picked up any sort of misogynistic vibes from this film. Did anybody feel that its, that its portrayal of women was, um, mis I'll just use the general term misogynistic and then I'll start to, to elucidate that point in a second. Um, anybody pick up on that as well? I mean, Jans has that line about, well, I could have raped you, so like, thank me for not raping you, right? <laughs> I mean, but, I, but I think it's also pretty clear that we're, we're meant to sort of, you know, not view him favorably because of that. You know, again, it, it's, it's, it's clear to me that the filmmakers and the audiences both sort of condemn his, uh, you know, I'm not sure, sure misogyny per se, but his sort of selfishness, his self-centeredness, uh, his inability to have any empathy for, for her in that moment. Um, so... I mean, I, that's the scene that, that struck me as the most uh, sort of you know, sexist or problematic, but I think it's done in a way that's, uh, that's uh, a moral context for that kind of thing. It's, it's not a misogynistic movie to me. In my, uh, I didn't experience it as misogynistic, but I definitely agree with the notion that this is a movie that, that is framed entirely in the male gaze, to use a, a feministic term. It is 100% a male gaze movie. And, and there's nothing, there's no more sharp... Uh, indication of this than just looking at the women in the movie versus the men in the movie look at look at the female leads versus the male leads the male leads are these like eccentric craggy looking people of variable ages and body types and stuff and the women are all these really hot swedish women like all four of them are like just super good looking and uh yeah, and so and and the way that the, the way the movie is framed, I think it definitely speaks to the male experience. I don't think it is a it is a movie that that speaks from a woman's perspective in any meaningful way. It's well, kind of par for the course for Bergman in some ways, though. I mean, he always almost always casts young, attractive Swedish actresses in the in the roles. But again, if you want to really contrast this, if you check his out his film Persona, which again has very attractive female leads, but but does it in a way which is sort of, I think, subversive of the male gaze. Because the more and more you get lost in looking at the women, the more and more confused their identities become. And it, it sort of fucks with your head in a beautiful way. But perhaps that's another film for another day. Well, just to, just to contrast that with a couple of the other uh, female leads in this film, yes, I mean, you do have that, uh, that one particular case where you have uh, Jan saying, you know, you should be thanking me for not raping you, but you also have kind of that scene where you have Scat and Lisa um, sort of sneaking off into the bushes and later on when they have their confrontation in the forest, you know, she's obviously being very manipulative and very fickle jumping from one person to the other and kind of the reaction to that is, hey, you know, women, you know, whatever, this is how women are. Yeah, what do you got to do? Um, but to contrast that a little bit, I, I, I really do want to look at Yoff and Mia and their relationship because Yoff is clearly the fool. He's the, clearly the idealist um, and sort of Mia sort of loves him because of that. But I think she's honestly seen or at least depicted as being sort of the more enlightened of the two. 
it's almost as if she understands kind of the truth and she sort of empathizes quite a bit with Antonius, but she sort of appreciates kind of appreciates kind of like that, that hopeful sort of foolish view that sort of, uh, sort of circumvents all the, the, the morbidity of the world. I don't know. So yes, like overall, I definitely wouldn't call this a feminist film exactly, but there is one sort of one example there where you have kind of like that more enlightened female character. Um, so yeah, I mean, Mia is sort of, Mia is the one character that definitely um, flies in the face of, of, of the, the thesis or the, the, um, the question of whether or not this is a misogynistic film. Um, I'm coming at this from a, a couple of different angles. The first is um, Virginia Woolf in her essay, uh, Room of One's Own. She talks about how in art and literature, uh, it, men are often depicted as dealing with the great unknown, that men are often depicted as struggling with heavy questions of faith and God and, and the meaning of it all. But women, female characters in art and literature rarely are given that opportunity. And in this film, it's, there's only that brief scene with Mia and, and Antonius where they're talking right before the, the dinner or the, the strawberries and the milk, um, where she is some she is to for a brief second allowed to talk about uh big questions but aside from that every other female character in this film doesn't deal with the main conflict of this film which is fuck death is following us what are we gonna do about this thing and even like so i wonder if while we're looking at this film as portraying the women as grounded and and um, practical characters, whether or not that in itself is not a is not a, a a check mark in the prose of this film. Whether or not this film should allow women to um, also deal with these these big questions. You talk about the squire and his his point of view of women is oh look at the look at women she's gonna. She's gonna start crying in a minute, and of course she does. And so this this bullshit about how they're so predictable and so emotional. Um, so that it, it's it's an aspect of this film that that to some degree dates this. It was made in 1957. We sort of understand the that we we don't have progressive views about about women at that point. Um, but it's still watching it in 2017. I, 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 I couldn't help but notice and get a little bit uncomfortable about, about that kind of stuff, uh, about how the female characters are, are um, portrayed here. Um, and then, of course, there's the misogyny associated with, you know, women were referred to as witches, not men, et cetera, et cetera. We can sort of build on this uh, as we go on, but that, that's something that I wanted to put up for, for question and debate. There, I mean, there again. I, I, his Bergman's film Persona, which came out like uh, like ten years after this one, I think very much deals with the feminist sorts of concerns that you're talking about. Um, so, it, it, maybe that ten years was enough for him to progress as a human, as a filmmaker, to those questions. Um, but I do think there is. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did want to respond to. I've, I forgot to respond to Persona real quick. Persona. She believes that she sees a god. And, and I know we, this isn't a podcast on Persona, but she believes she sees a God, but we never see the, 
we never see it from her perspective. So in the, the shot when Yosef sees uh, the Virgin Mary teaching the kid how to walk, um, we see that. So we're given some credibility to his vision. Um, we see death. So we're given some credibility to uh, Antonius's vision. We never see the God that Liv Ullman sees in, in persona. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to quickly respond. And, uh, nor, nor it should be pointed out, do we see the devils that the uh, young witch uh, claims to be able to see all around her either? Yeah, I, I, I would like to say more about persona, but I, again, I don't want to get distracted because that is a different film. Um, but Jim, t t there is another scene I think where where you do see women or a female character deal with the, the weightiness, and it's the one we we're talking about just a second ago. It's that final scene of the mute girl when the camera follows her down as she falls to her knees in the presence of death. I mean, it's not uh, an oratory scene, and she doesn't have some monologue the way the men do. But the the incredible expressive power of the actress's face as, as she stands in the presence of death. And, and, I mean, it, it's that's. That's very much a female character dealing with the big issues. And and if I could just really quickly, so I, I have in my notes to, to, to contrast that scene with, and I can't believe, you're just like you, Jim, I can't believe I'm going to make a connection to this film, Event Horizon. One of the most horrifying scenes in Event Horizon, I think Garrett and I have talked about this before, is not any of the blood orgy crazy shit, nasty scene, body horror shit, but actually it's the scene where I think it's the doctor or somebody uh, it has a bomb go off in their face. So they're looking for it in a locker. They open up the locker. There's like two seconds on the bomb and dude has two seconds and he's dead. And he looks at the camera and it's it's the most immense fear you've ever seen in your fucking life, right? And so I thought about that scene as I'm seeing the mute girl confront death and granted it's a different scenario. She sort of knows it's coming, I believe, whereas it, the, the fellow in Event Horizon, it's fast. So there are these little caveats, but it just struck me as a much more as a noble, as a, as kind of a beautiful confrontation with death that was just, I mean, it's done so differently in, in, a, in a, quite a few other films, but most specifically to me in the one in, uh, that, that bugged me and just gave me nightmares forever, which is Event Horizon. So yeah, if I could just like, like contrast those two things. Um, I, I think she confronted death in a way that was the right way to do it. It was better than everyone else. I don't know. And while I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you bring up issues with feminism, Jim, I, do, I think it is worth noting that this is five guys sitting around talking about <laughs> how the women's points of view in, in a film. Uh, it's a shame that Shara isn't here um, to, to, to leaven out all, all the, the testosterone a little, perhaps. I noticed that when I first came on. I was like, oh, no, I know I want to talk about the misogyny of this film, but shit, there are five guys sitting here, five white guys talking about women's issues. You went there. You went there. <laughs> Well, I, I felt like I had to, because I do think that this, like, I think it's something we're talking about, and I really would like to see, I mean, I hate all remakes, and I don't ever want this film to be remade, because Hollywood will ruin it, or anybody yeah, ben, ben would kill himself. Ben, yeah, ben, ben would actually confront death himself if they remade it. <laughs> yeah, I, but I would wonder what it would be like to have a film like this, or this, well, not a remake of this film, but a film like this, um, with a female protagonist. I would like to see something like that and, and not change a word, not change uh, Antonia's um, uh, reactions to death, but just have it be, have this be a universal experience because as Virginia Woolf points out, it's often, it's often viewed as a strictly male experience. But um, yeah, I, once again, I don't ever want, please, if any Hollywood person uh, ever gets a hold of this, don't remake The Seventh Seal. <laughs>
I mean, we've been talking so much about the existentialist aspects of it, and again, I, I specifically referenced Camus, but, uh, and, and uh, um, I think, Ben, I think you shared a book that talked about Sartre and uh, um, uh, 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 Bergman's films. Uh, I have not seen, but I would very much like to see um, an, an analysis of Bergman uh, from a more sort of female existentialist point of view, you know, uh, you know uh, Simone de Beauvoir, perhaps, um, uh, to sort of try to sort of lo look at his work through through that kind of lens. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what would fall out of that. So we actually have a question. Uh, someone uh, posted a question. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. Um, uh, Pony Swag, best name ever. Uh, why is uh, why is religious knowledge so important to block, and why aren't many believers satisfied with just belief? Why are why is religious knowledge so important to block, and why aren't many believers just satisfied with just belief? I mean, that's fucking Kierkegaard right there. Right? That's yeah, <laughs> right up Kierkegaard. You know, I mean, for for you know, Kierkegaard explicitly sort of condemns the idea uh, that that the religious persons should want knowledge. Um, and if, if religion is about knowledge, then it becomes banal. You know, the whole point of religion, for Kierkegaard at least, uh, is that it involves a surrendering of the idea that we can have knowledge, that we can understand life and, our, and the meaning and our purpose of it. Um, uh, what it does for us is uh, uh, gives us something that we can reach across that we can sort of suspend our, our this, this incessant need to know, to fully understand, uh, and then and, and surrender to the thing which we which is greater than us and which we can never understand. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you were to do a Kierkegaardian analysis of it, it would be that that moment where he insists not on faith but on knowledge. Um, uh, you know, Kierkegaard would say that he's no longer the knight of faith, right? Because he's he's lost his his way. Absolutely. I, I would ultimately argue that the knowledge that he seeks isn't inherently religious. I think he just wants answers at that point. Like you see the at the very beginning of the movie, whenever he wakes up and he's going to do his morning prayers, it honestly looks like he stumbles and is at a loss for words. Like I really already think at the beginning of the movie that he's entirely lost his faith and that ultimately he just kind of wants to know what's going to happen. So I wouldn't really call the knowledge that he seeks religious per se, just that he kind of wants to know what the end of it ultimately is like, regardless of what that answer is. I don't know. Like I'm not sure if everyone else would interpret it that way or not, but I, I would definitely say that the knowledge itself isn't inherently religious that he seeks. Okay. Okay. I have, I'm having a brainstorm here. Um, and you know, again, I know we're saying we don't want to remake, but I actually think I do want to remake, but I want to remake not told from a female character's point of view, Jim, although that would be fascinating. It would be interesting. I want a version of the story told from the Muslims point of view, you know, they, from the other side of the crusade. Um, what, you know, I, I, I don't know as much about Islam as I wish I did. I don't know if there is much, I'm not sure, I'm confident there is, although I don't know it in person, firsthand, a sort of an existentialist tradition in Islam. But that would, I think, be a really interesting story to retell it, but from the point of view of a Muslim warrior in the Crusades, reconciling him to his questions about faith and death uh, in the name of Allah. Um, uh, that, that, I think, would be a fascinating film. Starring Nicolas Cage. That would be... That'd be it. No, yeah, you're, you're absolutely... If if they made a remake of this with Nicolas Cage and it suffered the lack of quality and the loss of meaning that we saw in The Wicker Man from that transition, <laughs> I, I, I probably that. would. I, I would totally just... That, that would be the end of it, man. Like, I, Dance I would, of Death right there. Dance of no Death. More. Where's no more. your job now? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that sounds frightening. Um, 
I think to to go to the the question as well, um, specifically, why can't people of faith just be satisfied with just belief? Um, there's an interesting film, uh, Garrett, I know you're a fan of it as well, Silence, um, which is about a person of faith, but it deals with faith in a very complex way. So I don't think it's as easy, uh, I think it's much easier said than done to say, well, let's just believe. Um, and I think silence makes it clear that there's, there's more to it than just that. So. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about silence too. I mean, this is, this is the first time I saw Seventh Seal after seeing silence. And so I, I, the similarities between them and obviously the theme of the silence of God is something that, that connects both films. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, I agree with you, Jim, that it does sort of show that it's, yeah, it's easier said than done to say, let's just believe. But I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I come back to Kierkegaard here. It's, it's, it's certainly not what Kierkegaard is suggesting. It's, it's, it's precisely the fact that we struggle uh, with belief in the face of the absurdity of it. Like you say, it's like, you know, you, God is unavoidable, but also unbelievable. Um, uh, it's precisely that struggle and this sort of the psychological and emotional process of us trying to come to terms with that in our lives that gives life meaning uh, for Kierkegaard. So yeah, a, a, a shut up and believe approach is certainly one that many people do take, but it's not, it's not the approach that Kierkegaard takes. And I, I don't think it's the approach that, that the, either uh, Scorsese's silence or, or the seventh seal takes. Well, as, as to the why, and I think this, this kind of ties back in with the Seven Seal, as to the why, it's, it's fairly straightforward, and that's simply expectation failure. Like in brute psychological terms, the reason why it's difficult to believe where it's not difficult to believe that you're alive or that you have a brother or, you know, any other of these number of things that people sort of have as an absolute unshakable notion until they're literally brain damaged, you know, um, Whereas religion, people have a lot more doubts. And the reason they have those doubts is precisely because there's an expectation failure. You know, the, the religious view of the world tells you that you can expect certain things, that you can expect, you know, certain magical effects to occur if you perform the right, you know, rituals with the right mindset and so on. And you can see over and over and over and over, these, these expectations are never met in quite the way that they are expressed. And, and, you know, you see that people who are religious don't always die at peace with themselves. And people who are religious are not, you know, sick at a lower rate than people who are not. People who are religious are not nice to other people at a rate that people who are non-religious are not. You know, you, and so as you observe these contrasts between, between the belief that you have been, that's been ingrained in you and your actual experience of the world, you experience... Um, cognitive dissonance and and that's where the the doubt comes from that's where that's where god begins to separate into into two parts one of which is impossible not to believe and one of which is impossible to believe and and that, that that's a, that's great Antonio. i really like that a lot and what, what makes me think of it is it comes back to the title right the seventh seal and you know in the book of revelation the seal is sort of you know, it's the opening of the, the scrolls of, of the, the knowledge it's the beginning of the apocalypse and you know, there is this sense that if the apocalypse did come the, there's a silver lining there. I mean, whether whether you, you go to heaven or you go to hell, at least you know, right? You know, the, the, the questions no longer plague you. You don't have to wonder whether or not there's a God. You know, uh, uh, the, the end is nigh, all will be revealed. And whatever uh, torments may await you in hell, if you end up going there, uh, at, at the very least, you're no longer in this position of suspension where you don't know. And if you really want knowledge uh, um, the way the knight does, then... Uh, yeah, that's uh, th that's at least some relief. It's weird to think of the apocalypse as having so, that. So, 
to, to wrap it back around to expectation failure, you know, the movie really is about, is about learning to line your expectations up with, with what you have come to discover is the reality, you know, that, that death is always there around every corner, that he is listening in on your chess moves, that the most you can hope to impede him is simply knock a couple pieces off his board and, you know, while someone else profits from your desperation, you know? Um, and, and so it's about, it's about going from the cognitive dissonance of those expectation failures, you know, the, the asking, asking, why is this, where, where is God in all this to simply saying, um, you know, my, my previous view was, was wrong. You know, what the important thing is the bowl of fresh milk. The important thing is realizing that I can't outsmart death, you know, that I must at some point when, when, you know, my important thing is done, I must welcome him into my house as a Lord, you know? Um, it's very rich in that. If I could, though, too, just that I, I love that characterization of the opening of the seventh seal is uh, the dissemination of knowledge there, because I do think that there comes a point in the forest whenever Antonius has lost his game, or at least he comes within one move of a checkmate. I guess they never actually end it, but they accept that it's over. Um, he has that one last sort of little conversation with death that, you know, he asks them, you know, for any, for any answers that he has or any insight that he has. And he's like, you know, there, there's nothing, you know, I, I have no secrets to tell. So I really feel like that kind of is the point of gnosis. It's like, you know, he's disseminating uh, there's, I mean, you know, if there's anything out there, I don't know it and who would know better than me, but he still sort of chooses to have faith anyway. And I think that might be where the cognitive dissonance sort of like would really show itself, right? Because even though he's been given this piece of knowledge and like, you know, here you go, here's the truth. It's too much to handle and it's too much to fit into his worldview and his cognitive structures. So it just has to be rejected. You know, he's going to choose faith anyway, because at least it makes the facing the truth a little bit easier. Like, you know, he, he takes that and he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to choose to kind of like at the end of the movie, I'm still going to pray. I'm still going to look sort of beyond at my faith and sort of hold out hope because that kind of makes it easier. Um, you know, I don't know. Just, just to throw that out there, I guess. Anything else you guys want to add about this movie? I feel well, like we could, I feel like we could take one line and talk about it for seven hours. It's ridiculous. I actually, I actually have to leave, but um, I know that you guys would be disappointed if I didn't leave with with a summation and give give it my rating. So I guess I'll I'll, I'll kick that off and and leave the rest to you, gentlemen. Um, I think this is an uh, an amazing movie. It, it 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 is it's a little heavy handed in that it expresses uh, some of its existential themes um, with much more directness than maybe would be necessary for a really sophisticated audience. But on the other hand, it makes the movie accessible uh, on an existential level in a way that, that a lot of other existential movies really aren't. And so I think that that ultimately works more to the movie's strength than weakness. It's almost a perfect movie. It's a, it's, it's got a great sense of pacing. It's got great dialogue. It's got a really interesting script, which although the script was criticized as the weakest part of the movie upon its release, I discovered, which I thought was really interesting. Um, where I actually thought the movie had weaknesses, if it had any, were um, I didn't like, you know, just as a technical observation, I didn't like the way that they handled the camera work and the screen transitions. They were kind of awkward. There's like, a, in particular, a couple fades from one scene to another that just look terrible by modern standards and would never be in any, would never make it off the editing floor in any movie. Um, 
So minor ding there. And the other thing is that for as much symbology as they have, uh, you know, in Christian themes in the rest of the movie, the initial appearance of the Virgin Mary and the Christ child, not ever showing back up in any way, shape or form or being addressed or alluded to in any way, shape or form. Uh, I really wish that they had that, that felt like a kind of an arbitrary element that was just meant to demonstrate Joseph's second sight and had no other purpose in the movie. And I kind of didn't like that. Other than that, I would say it's pretty much a perfect movie. You know, it's got great pacing. It's got great acting. It's got a really interesting sort of soundtrack. Um, it's uh, got great uh, script. It's very thoughtful. The symbolism is, you know, rich and meaningful, and you can delve super deep into it. So I give it a 9.5 out of 10. Ding it a half point for the camera work and the Virgin Mary. And with that, I leave you gentlemen to the rest of the discussion. Thank you all, and have a good night. Thank you. That's the first time the Virgin Mary's ever been dinged. <laughs> I guess I'll pick um, up. There. Okay, go ahead, Garrett. Um, there's, there's no way to segue out of that. That was like the greatest joke ever. So just go for it, Garrett. <laughs> um, oh, don't, don't sell your puns from earlier. Shy, no. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I, I'm, I'm inclined to sort of, I think I'm going to share uh, Antonio's rating. I give it sort of a nine and a half. I ding it for slightly different reasons, though. Um, I, I actually do think an aspect of the script in particular, I, I feel there's, there's in some sense a lack of cohesion from a lot of the different sort of characters. Um, the, you know, the, the relationships between them aren't entirely clear. Um, I mean, the relationship between like the knight and the squire is clear, and then the knight and the mute girl is clear, clear but they all sort of end up as part of this caravan together. And it's it's not entirely clear what how the others sort of think or or, or relate to one another um, uh, in a variety of different ways. And I think that's and that's a consequence of the fact I think that plot wise, I mean, like we're saying, it's, it's, someone said it's a plotless film. I'm not sure it's plotless, but the 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 plot isn't really this the strong suit. You know, the 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 the, the story going forward, in as much as there is a story, is almost just sort of connective tissue for to getting to these sort of you know dialogues and these soliloquies about death and so. Well, I think the the dialogue is wonderful, um, and then the existentialist themes are wonderful. Uh, in principle, I would I would have liked to have seen a, a tighter a tighter plot, a tighter story, and, 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 and so doing tighten the relationships between the characters. I have no idea how that would be done. I certainly am not suggesting that I could have done it better, um, but it is something that you know, I, ideally, I think, in, in a perfect film uh, uh, would have been there. So, so nine, nine and a half. Great. Yeah, I'll go next. Um, Do you? Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make mine really quick. I, I would give this, um, well, I don't want to start with my score. Um, I'll start with what I ding it. Um, not not Mary, but how I ding the movie. Um, I, you know, I actually wanted this to be longer. I, I would have uh, uh, enjoyed more of the dialogue stretched out, more of the <clears throat> characters developed a little. So I think I'm, I'm sort of agreeing with Garrett a little bit. Um, I wanted more of the conversations about God and doubt explored a little more through Antonius. Um, again, maybe that would have made the film feel very different and, and, and maybe not as, uh, well, definitely not as, as succinct, but, um, it, it maybe would have given the entirety of the film a completely different flavor. Um, but I would have liked some of this just kind of just talked about a little more because there's these, um, very powerful one-liners or, or paragraphs or sentences that, um, that I feel a lot more could be said but I get why they weren't said. So I, I don't want to ding it too hard. Um, to me, I feel like in, uh, it, up until now, I think we've done 
close to 15 films. And I feel like it kind of comes down to all other 14 in this one. This one just feels entirely different. It feels much more somber, much more deep. And it's probably because, at least from my perspective, um, I've had experiences that I sort of think would rival that of Antonius. I mean, clearly not. I, I'm a shitty ch I'd play checkers with death. If death tried to come, a pro, it'd be checkers. All right. It'd be like Mario Kart with death. Um, but, but I mean, I, I, I get the struggles, the existential side of it. I get the fear. I get the wanting to know. I, I, I get all of that. Um, so I think for that, it spoke to me uh, in a way some of the other movies um, that we've been watching haven't. Um, you know, letting go of the fear of dying was a huge part of, of, of my experience of, of, of just confronting death and also losing my faith. I, I stayed in the faith for a very long time precisely because I was so scared of dying. And I know that about myself. I, I, I know that a good, I would still call myself a Christian, even though I doubted horribly, even to the point where if you, you got me drunk, I'd say, I don't, I don't believe in God. I would still, for the most part, try to try so hard, just close my eyes and, and clench my fists and say, no, I believe, I believe part of it because I just was scared to death of not existing, that that concept um, was just monumentally unsettling to me. Um, and I had my own experience in a film where that took that away from me and I don't wanna butcher uh, this film by, by talking about it too much, but that was the Liam Neeson film, The Grey. Um, I saw that accidentally and it completely messed me up, totally messed me up. But it messed me up in a way that allowed me to, to finally step over that last hurdle. And I feel like maybe, I don't know, Ben, I mean, we started this by sort of trying to, you know, w wondering what, what is it about this movie? I, I'd be really curious to know if, um, maybe anything we've said is kind of expounded on, on some of the things that you wanted to explore, or maybe answered some of the questions you have. But before I guess we get into that, I would give this film a nine and a half. I'd give it a 9.5 out of 10. Um, I, I thought the script was great. I wanted more of it. Um, I, I, I thought that um, it was profound. And in terms of fear, we usually like rate the, the film in terms of how scary it is. I, I, I don't even feel like this deserves that. I feel like bringing that metric into this kind of film would just degrade the value of the film. I, I felt like this was a masterpiece and probably the definitive masterpiece compared to everything else we've done this far. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know how. I mean, we have The Phantom Carriage coming up next, which, by the way, is also about death. So this is just, this is just death week. We're just going to keep going with death here. It's gonna be, I'm gonna be sending you guys oxy in the mail just to get through the next couple of weeks from these podcasts. Um, yeah, so 9.5 on my end. Uh, ben, do you wanna go next or should I go with summation or? No, no, feel free to jump in. Um, okay. I wanna summarize my thoughts a little. I wanna think about um, what everyone says before I say anything. Okay. Um, so you guys are doing this on a 10 scale, um, as far as I, I, I do like a five, uh, five star thing. So, uh, my initial rating of this was a three and a half stars. So I guess that would translate to about a, a seven. Um, and the, where I would, so I'll talk about the, the film's, uh, weaknesses, uh, first, and then I would, and then I'll go through, uh, what I think are its strengths. Um, the, the two things that I find difficult about this film, uh, or not difficult, the, the two things that, that I sort of ding it, if, if those are the terminologies that we're using, um, is I, I brought up the topic of misogyny before. I, I do think that dates the film. It, it makes it difficult for me to um, call it a perfect film. Um, and I also think that there are times in this film when the characters become representations of ideas and not people, um, not, not full, well-rounded characters. Um, and I, 
mainly that's the female characters. Um, I think Antonius and Jans, the two main characters, are are well rounded. But I think that the rest of the supporting players are um, just that supporting players. Um, so that's that's where I I maybe my my metric is a little bit. Um, harsher than, than others. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't like this film. I, I really like this film. I think it's, I, it's, a, it's a recommend. Um, I think it's interesting. I think it, it's, it's smart. It explores good ideas in interesting ways. Um, it takes the type of risks that many other films don't. Uh, it's sort of a cliche to say it, but uh, they just don't make them like this anymore and they don't. Um, but overall, I think that there are parts of this film that, that keep it from being a perfect movie or keep it from being a, a four-star film for me. Um, so that's, that's where I am as, as a whole. So before, before we throw it over to Garrett, I'm really curious what, like, what a 10 is to you. So we, we kind of did this in, other, in our other sessions where um, you know, I'd give my, my highest rating, I think, so far to the horror film, It Follows. Um, and, and that's kind of like the oh. pinnacle scary movie. So what's your, what's your, what is your, uh, what's your, what's your 10? What's your 9.5? For, for a uh, horror film or for, uh, film in all films in general? Let, let's go both. If you could. Okay. Bam. Uh, horror film. My favorite horror film is The Shining. Um, I think that's a 10 or a, a five-star film, uh, 10 for me. Um, I That's on would... our list. So we'll definitely add you if you uh, want to be a part of it. Yeah, I would, I would love to be. Um, so The Shining is, is my favorite horror film. Um, I probably won't have anything bad to say about that one, unfortunately. Oh, we'll uh, find something. We'll find something. <laughs> this, is an, this is an anti-feminist. That's what we're going to shoot for. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, the naked woman in the bathtub. It's so male gaze. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so The Shining, I think, is, is my favorite horror film. Um, closely followed by... Um, the Exorcist, which we mentioned before, Rosemary's Baby, I think is really good too. Although I think those have uh, critical problems. Um, my favorite movie of all time is Miller's Crossing. That's an easy five-star film. Um, Casablanca, Annie Hall. Those are, those are my, my tens. Um, I, there are others as well. I, my favorite film of last year was Silence. Um, that's a 10 as well. Uh, so there's, that's sort of, Gives you a uh, a metric. I did not like it. Follow it follows. I have to watch the uh, the podcast so I can yeah, see. Yeah, well, why death, death is coming for you now, my friend, because that's <laughs> uh, that's a sin. Yeah, right I, I, I have we have uh, we have two things on it. I did my own thirty minute analysis of it of just me, and then we we did a discussion for like an hour and a half. So check it out. I think you'd like it. Okay. Yeah. yeah if sure if we don't convince you, we have to have a sit down. We have to talk about it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, for for me, again, yeah, I, the, what I go to me is silence. Silence for me was 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 a ten out of ten. Um, it was a, a film that absolutely floored me. De dealt with a lot of the same issues that Seven Seal did, um, but without those sort of minor flaws that I that I that I talked about. Um, my favorite film of all time, uh, also a Stephen King film, Shawshank Redemption, um, uh, but not really a horror film. I don't know. I mean, you know, The Shining is a fantastic film. Um, I, I, I probably would give that a nine and a half, too, though, because, again, I think sexism issues. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, as much as I love horror as a genre, if I can think of any 10 out of 10s, maybe Rosemary's Baby, uh, possibly. Um, but uh, uh, I'm, I would have to give it some more thoughts uh, to, to, to pick a horror film that I thought was, a, was, was, was without a doubt a flawless film.
So what Maybe would you Nightmare give? What, before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you? Uh, that's a damn good film. What would you? Uh, what would you give? Uh, what would you give this film, Garrett? We'll, give, we'll do that. We'll do the sophomoric not, uh, ten, uh, 10 scale. Yeah, I, I give it nine and a half. Uh, nine, nine and a half. Uh, minor detractions because of I felt some 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 looseness in the character relationships and not a terribly cohesive plot line throughout. Um, but you know, all things considered, those are fairly minor critiques. Well, there you go, Ben. So far, this is uh, even even with his seven seven and a half. I think uh, this is the highest. This is the highest rated film I think we've done, like across the board. Um, and this is, I just want to point out before we go to Ben and get his final thoughts, this is so antithetical to like the initial, I keep saying this, the initial, uh, thrust of this podcast. Um, I, I don't want to get on the soapbox about this, but basically I have this, um, I hate when we romanticize the classics and the past. And I like to focus on modern films and talk about those modern horror films, for example, in this, in this podcast. Um, cause I feel like it, we, it's easy to confuse like be a good film with a, a nostalgic film or a film of old. And yet here we are, it seems like the farther back we go, the higher the ratings are across the board, even with me. So I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about anymore. I think I may just have to, may just have to eat crow on that. Well, it makes a certain degree of sense though, right? Cause we're not going to go back to films from the fifties that are only mediocre. I mean, you know, if, if we're going back in time, you're going to focus on the best of the best. That's fair. So that makes a certain degree of sense, I think. Plan 9 from Outer Space was an amazing horror film. I think we should. No, of course, that's, <laughs> I'm joking there. He's like, Killer Shrubs from Outer Space. Classic. Classic. So what do you think, Ben? So you're, this, is, you're, this is your 10, right? This is your 10. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess you guys already know sort of what I think about this, right? So, I, you know, the cat's already out of the bag. We already have the gnosis. I guess because we know the end of the story, perhaps we can appreciate the journey a little bit more, right? Um, <laughs> so, I, I do, I understand, okay, so like I didn't expect everyone to give this a high rating. Um, and that's part of the reason why I was a little bit reluctant to even talk about it in the first place. I appreciate that there you know, was a 7.5. Um, and I think that's the nature of real art, right? Like it's not going to resonate with every single person, but it's going to resonate with some people so strongly that it, it overwhelms literally every other experience or interpretation that you could possibly have. And that's kind of what happened here. If I were to sort of judge this on kind of like the visual aspects, yes, they were really interesting shots, but let's be honest it was a film from the fifties, you know, I mean, it's not exactly going to be comparable to something that we could shoot today. It's not, you know, avatar, you know, I mean, it's not like mind blowing in terms of the visuals. Um, the dialogue even is a little bit rudimentary. Um, but the, the substance I think really makes up for that. And the fact that I had such, I guess I'm going to call it an emotional reaction to this film. I think that's, that's primarily why I gave it a 10, right? Um, I think it is about horror. I think it is sort of like fits into this genre loosely, um, but it's really kind of like an outside comparison. And I think we've already touched on that just a little bit. Like I had to kind of go outside of the bounds of traditional horror just a little bit to give you my 10. But I do think that's fair because I really do think this touches on something that, that is deeper than, than a slasher film or like seeing a lot of blood or like, you know, seeing something that we think is scary. I really think something about this or at least shows me personally, the root of all of those fears or at least what they mean to me personally. Um, and, and pretty much that's why I give this a 10, right? Like I understand the, the problems with the plot line. I honestly see this more as a series of conversations, kind of like you would think of the, um, what do you call that movie? The, um, waking life. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Obviously it's nothing comparable. It's not the same thing. This blows that out of the water by every metric. 
Um, you know, I've, <laughs> but in, in terms of structure, I think it's fair to compare it to that because yes, I mean, it is a little bit disjointed, but honestly, I think that serves the purpose a little bit of showing that each character faces death independently and alone. You know, if you've ever seen a movie called Johnny found his gun or Johnny got his gun, I think is what it's called. Um, you actually, if you've ever seen the music video from Metallica's one, you've seen this, but there's a quote in that movie that every, every man faces death alone. And I think that's kind of shown in this movie a little bit by the fact that it is disjointed because everyone has their kind of independent experiences. Um, and that makes it better for me. I don't need everyone to be completely cohesive. I don't need them to be related by any other common denominator, but the fear that they have the common fear. And I think there's a conversation that, you know, Jans has, of course, with the painter where he says, you know, afraid you don't know me. <laughs> but that's so ironic and so funny because you don't have to know him to know that he has that, that same basic fear as everyone else. And I think it's uniting on that aspect because we all sort of share that. I think um, I haven't found an example to the contrary, even if this one particular film didn't highlight that the best for everyone. I, I think we all have that. And I think that's something very important. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, it, it's hard for me to talk about this just because it's not interesting to me. Like on, I mean, it is like, obviously there's a lot of philosophical content on here, but the reason that this movie is important to me isn't for a philosophical reason. I watched it just on a whim and it hit me in on, on a level that no other film has, no other piece of music has, no other work of art has nothing period. Um, yeah. That's kind of why I give it a 10. So just, um, yeah, I guess that's where I'm going to leave it. I don't mean to step on your on your on your toes there at the, for your closer, Ben. But uh, since you bring up the whole idea of that uh, we all face death alone, th that's a sentiment which has resonated with me too. But uh, Shelley Kagan, who I know several of you are, are fans of him, he has an open Yale course on death, uh, and he actually has a bit of an extended rant on that idea that every man dies alone. And, and in that open course, he basically he he makes the case that that idea is either vacuous, false, or uh, are just not worth taking seriously. Um, so if you're if you if you're interested in exploring one professional philosopher's take on that idea that we all die alone, uh, uh, Shirley Kagan's little bit in that at the has always served personally for me as as a, as a little counterpoint. I have seen that it's on YouTube. I think it's free on YouTube. Uh, I didn't. I don't know if Ben remembers this, but um, like a couple years ago, I, uh, Jim and, and Garrett. Garrett, you may remember this. A couple years ago, uh, in our in our little scratch pad philosophy group that we're a part of, and we do a Halloween at Google Hangout every year. And I think it was like two or three years ago, this guy joins up, and we do it. On, we all come in costume, and it's all just like this Google Hangout. And he has the black hoodie and the white face, and he's he's death from this film, and he's got a long giant cigar. And I had no idea who this person was. Like his username was different at the time. It, it was Ben. It was I, like a literally, I'm gonna post the photo of him as death on the Deadly Analysis Facebook page, just so everyone knows like how serious he was about this film. But I, I love I love stories like that, Ben, where it's like you have a cinematic cinematic experience that just sort of speaks to you. And it's almost, um, it, it's it's uh, almost indescribable that the more you try to describe the reasons why it was impactful to you, the the, the almost the harder it gets, the more unclear it becomes. Um, I think that's an awesome experience. I think people, I, I, I've had that with books and I've had that with cinema. And I think that um, being able to share in this with you is kind of fun. I mean, I, it, it, at least for me, mimics some of my own experiences, which I thought was really cool. And I mean, we didn't explore those with you. Maybe how, how some of your religious experiences have sort of echoed some of this. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely curious to maybe pursue that. Maybe we could do that in a later film. But um, yeah, this was a great, experience at least for me a great film did you guys have anything else that you guys want to add before we close out 
Um, just briefly, I think that uh, as I was listening to Ben talk about, as, as I was listening to you, Ben, talk about your personal experiences with this film, um, you know, I, I see, I, I certainly see why this film could do that for someone. And, and it, because it didn't do that for me, um, it means that's, that's where I'm sort of at the uh, three or seven rather than the, the 10. I think that, um, and, and because I wasn't totally sucked into the the film the way you were, is is sort of what 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 kept it. Sort of the contrast of that is Silence, where I was totally sucked into uh, the film, and and it did resonate for me personally in probably identical ways that you did. Um, but I think that's also one of the reasons we all love art, right? We we all love art because it's it's idiosyncratic in many ways and uh and so yeah i i think that's something that we could sort of celebrate as we as we talk about other movies as well so moving on yeah no we we um we we try or at least i try to make the distinction in this podcast between uh, like appreciating a film or appreciating a horror film and enjoying right. a horror film right the objective and the and the i think we and i think we've hit on both of those i i it's, this was a great experience um yeah, I uh, we got to beat we we got to beat uh, Ingmar Bergman's uh, The Seventh Seal. Now this is now if I'm putting that on the list is the highest rated film across the board. Uh, so next week we're going to be doing uh, The Phantom Carriage, 1929. Just keep going backwards. We're eventually but we're just going to keep going to like the first film. I think is what's going to happen. We're just going to keep going back and back and back. Um, so I have seen The Phantom Carriage. Have any of you guys seen The Phantom Carriage? I'm really curious. Yeah, I I saw it um, in film appreciation classes awesome. like like 20 years ago so yeah nice uh it's 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 an interesting film so i'm <laughs> he's I like i don't want to look I don't spoil it. what do you have to say about that yeah i i don't want to spoil it <laughs> my you know what this is going to sound crazy my first experience of this i shara actually who wasn't here tonight was the one who told me about it and i was going to see a, a modern horror film I, and it was get out shit like uh this last year and i saw it at a theater called alamo draft house that does uh, it was in Dallas that does like, uh, they give you beer and food and shit. And you have like recliners, it's a very bourgeoisie sort of theater, like one of those. But one of the things they do is they show like, instead of, a well, they show trailers, but right before the film starts for like 30 minutes, they show uh, actual scenes from other films. And so they played a good amount of the Phantom Carriage. And I was sitting there just like glued, like everyone's walking in like, shh, shh, stop shut up like i'm i'm just like glued to the phantom carriage and so i absolutely had to had to put it on the list for for one of the films we talk about um so yeah and get out is not on the list even though it was like the top horror film this last year but whatever whatever it's a good film uh okay so uh yeah uh, thank you guys for watching we had a few viewers this was kind of cool we had a couple questions from uh, pony swag best name ever uh and uh, so check us out next week we'll be doing a uh, phantom carriage uh check us out on facebook instagram and twitter at the deadly analysis podcast if you like what you saw uh, send us a message, uh, give us a like, and uh, thanks for watching, and see us next Sunday night.